Amen. Thank you, Pastor Carlos. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be gathered together again to hear from God's Word. And so, uh, if you are able, will you stand with me as I read from God's Word? We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48 this week. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know if Jesus got the memo, but some people are harder to love, to love than others. You know, there, there's just some of those people that are like, oh, Lord, this is hard. Jesus, how could you possibly say that I'm supposed to love that person? How could you possibly say that I'm supposed to turn the other cheek? Jesus, don't you know? Now, obviously, I'm being a little facetious. And also, the fact that some people are harder to love than others doesn't mean that we can either find ourselves in the hard-to-love camp or the easy-to-love camp as if that's something that identifies who we are, but more so that all of us struggle to love particular people sometimes. Some people are easier to love for us than others. But here we have Jesus commanding us to love those people anyways. And he tells us not to resist those who wish us harm. So what are we supposed to do with those commandments? What are we supposed to do? I, I've called it the most ridiculous command here this morning. Yeah, because it's like, Jesus, how am I supposed to do this? We're familiar with these ideas. You know, the idea of turning the other cheek, we, we've even heard it a lot in our culture. The idea of loving your enemies, again, kind of something that we have heard before. But knowing about that doesn't mean that I really know how to do that. Or that that's the type of person that I actually am. So how do we actually love those people? Now, we've been in this sermon series, Greater Righteousness. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've kind of, I've highlighted that kind of the thesis statement for the whole sermon is this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus isn't saying you have to do these things in order to get God to like you, but these are the type of people, people who, ha- people who have this type of righteousness, these are the type of people who we find in the kingdom. You see, God does something in our hearts when we become Christians, when we lay down our lives and say, Jesus, you are my Savior, I trust that I can't measure up to what you have for me or what you desire from me. I have sinned against you, will you forgive me? And then God tells us he gives us a new heart when we lay down our lives and that that does something in us and we become a particular type of people. And the Sermon on the Mount is showing us what these people are like. But also through the Sermon on the Mount, he forms these things within us. As we become aware of these things, we become more and more like these things, or these things become us. So, We have to have this exceeding righteousness. And then for the past few weeks, we've been walking through Jesus giving six examples of what this righteousness looks like in relationship to the law or the Torah or the the covenant that God had with his people, that instruction. So six examples of this greater righteousness. And the the two we read today, this, um, you know, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and loving your neighbor, those are the last two. And the last one in particular serves as kind of a summary of the previous five. You really could fit the previous five under the umbrella of the sixth. All of them have to do with loving your neighbor. This idea of murder and adultery and divorce and oath-keeping, all of those are in relationship with other people. So the, the final one really kind of serves as the top of the mountain, if you will, or at least this part of the mountain. It's a false peak because we're going to get to more parts of the sermon later, but... It's a, a key part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let me pray, and we're going to dive into unpacking these verses that we just read. Father, help us to hear from you today, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, you are my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, so starting out, we're in verse 38, and Jesus is like, hey, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, in these six examples, we've seen that Jesus has a pattern. He gives a quote from the Old Testament, and then he kind of says, but I say to you, and that I is emphatic, by the way, I am telling you something. I say to you. And then the third part is he gives examples or an elaboration upon what he means. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Well, the reference that this is, or this, uh, what this reference is, is Exodus 21, verse 24. It also shows up two other times uh, in uh, the first five books of the Bible. But the, the name for it is lex talionis. It's the idea of let the punishment fit the crime. That this, the, the retribution that needs to happen should match what the crime actually was. So if somebody knocks out your tooth, you don't go and kill them. The intent of the law was designed to be something that would curb excessive retaliation. It's designed to be something that has others in mind, where we don't just have these blood feuds going on back and forth and back and forth, but that we have a right ordering in relationship with other people. It's supposed to be a positive command of, hey, don't let your anger get carried away. Don't be a vigilante, that type of thing. But it became abused to where it became this concept, and we still experience this in our own hearts, where I'm owed retaliation. Oh, you did something to me, so therefore I get to see you punished. Now, there is something good and righteous about justice 
and about wrongs being made right. But Jesus here is speaking against this sense in my heart where something has happened to me and I'm like, that person needs to pay to make me feel better. That's what he's speaking against. It's basically me looking out for my own interests. And so Jesus gives this statement. So we have that, the Old Testament reference, and then Jesus' statement, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now our gut reaction to this is like, <laughs> okay, Jesus, what, what are you talking about? Um, that seems kind of stupid to not resist the one who is evil. If somebody's doing these things to me, shouldn't I at least, you know, run away or not just lay down? Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Now, I'm going to unpack that in a minute, because I think the examples kind of show what Jesus means by don't resist. And I don't think it means, it's this blanket statement of pacifism. I think he's actually getting after something that's going on in our hearts. But let me give you our first point for today, as we keep moving forward. It's this, the Christian seeks to bless others, even those who have wronged us. The Christian seeks to bless others, even those who have wronged us. I think this is what Jesus is saying when he says, don't resist the evil person. I think he's speaking about this idea of active blessing. Instead of seeking to get what I'm owed, instead my perspective on that person is completely different. I'm seeking to bless. And it's not just my friends, but it's those who have wronged me. Okay, now before I go deeper into that, I want to unpack these kind of four examples that Jesus gives. The first one is this idea of striking or slapping on the cheek. Now, this is not just, hey, somebody's beating you up. This is actually the idea of insult. To be slapped on your right cheek would mean that somebody's kind of, used, they're backhanding you with their right hand in that culture, and that's an insult. This isn't, hey, if you're being attacked, just let them attack you more. This has to do with honor and shame. It's if somebody disrupts your honor and shames you, then you don't need to retaliate. Then you turn the other cheek. You allow them to take your honor. And you don't need to worry about the fact that you've been shamed. That's the direction that Jesus is going. He's not, he's not diving into what do you do if you get in a fight. Now, not that we should just be out attacking people, but I do think it's important to understand kind of the good clarity of, or get clarity as to what realm Jesus is actually talking about. The second thing that he goes into is this idea of somebody suing you and then give them your, your cloak. Like if somebody sues you to take your tunic, give them your cloak also. Like, well, what's Jesus talking about there? Well, in Exodus twenty two twenty six, shortly after we get the idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, uh, Moses is talking about uh, if you are a poor person, or namely if you're a rich person, you have a poor person in your debt, the types of things that you could take for pledge. And what you cannot take as a pledge for the debt is the cloak. It says that if someone gives you their cloak as a pledge, you have to return it to them at night because the cloak doubled as a blanket. So it was kind of like a, hey, somebody needs their blanket at night, you know, it gets cold. You can't disrupt their livelihood or their ability to live. A poor, a poor person is entitled to the basic necessities of life. So when Jesus here says that if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well, he's not saying just, well, if somebody comes after you, just give them everything. 
What he's saying is, you need to seek to be able to give even that which you are not required. Do you have their best interests at heart? You're not required to give them their clo- your cloak. They could never ask you to give them your cloak. But are you willing to give it anyways? Is that the type of heart that you have for that person? <clears throat> are you looking to bless the third one is this idea of going the extra mile, and that's very common in our, in our understanding. But we, it's not just, hey, am I willing to do more for somebody? But the Roman soldiers were allowed to conscript civilians. If, you know, Romans were kind of walking along the road, the soldiers are walking, and you see a civilian, you could make them go with you one mile and carry your gear. And Jesus says, hey, you Jews out there who hate the Romans, who are occupying your territory, who are the oppressive people, who are punishing you, when they ask you to take their stuff for a mile, go with them too. Seek to bless. Seek to bless. This would have come across as incredibly difficult to swallow. You want me to bless that guy? We don't like the Romans, Jesus. We're not fans of them. Have you seen what they've done? Have you seen how they blaspheme the living God? But Jesus says, bless them anyways. Will you go an extra mile? And then he follows with, give to the one who begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's kind of this summary statement of the three that have come before. Do I have this generous spirit that says, I don't care who this person is, what they've done against me, but I love them anyways and I'm seeking to bless. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper into this idea of blessing even those who have wronged us. And I, I want to talk about two postures of our hearts that I think make it possible to bless those who have wronged us. The first one has to do with my posture towards others, and the second one has to do with my posture towards the Lord. But let's, let's talk about the others first, because I think having this kind of heart requires a change in posture towards others. Specifically, I'm not looking for my own interests, but I'm looking for their interests. Again, this idea, I'm not resisting. I'm, I'm just kind of saying, how can I bless them anyways? Now, when I say looking to their own interests, I don't mean be a doormat. Okay? I don't think Jesus is giving us here a reason for sticking around in abuse. Because again, that's not the type of thing Jesus is talking about. He's talking about honor and shame and those you just don't like, those are seeking to harm you, do you seek to bless? Do you seek their interests, even the Ill, evil ones? And I, I want to kind of paint this picture of seeking people's interests in this way. Our culture loves a good revenge story, does it not? Like, I mean, how many movies are out there that are about, you know, the good guy going out and getting revenge? You know, something has happened, and so they're making things right. I mean, take the, the John Wick movie series. I mean, that movie, those, those, I actually haven't seen them. It'd probably be the type of movie that I would enjoy. A lot of action, fun stuff. But John Wick, in case you don't know, he's an assassin. So I do know what the movie's about. He's an assassin, and uh, his dog is killed. And so then he goes on a murderous rampage. And, like, that's, that's the movie. You know, he's, he's, he's getting justice for his dog. And that sells in our culture. We love that. We're like, yeah, you killed the puppy. It's like, okay, maybe it's a little excessive, but all right. So that's one path we go down. The other path is somebody's out for revenge, and by the end of the movie, they realize, oh yeah, revenge isn't healthy. This isn't good for me. I just need need to be free from this. I need to let it go. Those are the two paths 
that our culture offers us. It's either you go all out or you realize that it's good for you to not, you know, get retali- or you not, not to retaliate. But what our culture doesn't understand and you don't see anything about is this idea of not that I don't go out for justice, but I seek the good of the person who has wronged me. That's rare. Surely there's probably something about that, but that is not something our culture talks about. It's either, hey, lay off for your own well-being because you can't live with that bitterness, which is true, but that's like going halfway. Jesus is going all the way. And he's saying, yeah, that guy over there that maybe murdered your puppy or has done something, are you willing to go and embrace them and to seek their good instead of saying, i got to make things right. Jesus says the way to make things right is to bless them and love them well. Jesus is not giving us a set of new rules to follow. Of if A happens, then do B. But he's saying, what type of person are you? Do you seek their good? I don't think Jesus either is addressing the evil out there. Jesus isn't saying, what should my reaction be to terrible situations that are happening there? Do I just kind of throw my hands up and say, well, Jesus told me not to resist? Well, no, because Jesus is talking about the evil that's done to me. Not, I I see something terrible happening to a child and I don't intervene because I'm not supposed to resist. No! Jesus gives us a command to love our neighbors. And so that means being in the world and actively seeking justice. We do that as believers. But the question that Jesus is wrestling with here, and that, well, he's presenting us and telling us to wrestle with, is what do I do with the evil that's done to me? How do I respond to that? So that's the first one. I need to have a posture that says, I'm looking to their good, even though evil's been done. But then also that changes my posture with the Lord. Because really the only way to have that posture with others is having a, a perspective or a posture towards the Lord that says, I trust that you are in control. I trust you, God. We have to be willing to ask ourselves, am I willing to let God be the one who pursues vengeance? I'm going to leave retribution to him. Let me give you a biblical example. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, you have David who is being pursued by Saul. David did nothing against Saul other than that God anointed David to be the future king. You know, God rejected Saul because he was a wicked man, did a lot of things that were unfaithful. So God's like, well, David's going to be my next king. And Saul is jealous of David and all the success he has. And so Saul is seeking to kill David unjustly. David has been nothing but loyal to Saul. And yes, David knows that he's going to be the next king, but he's not trying to unseat David or Saul. And so Saul is pursuing David, and David is hiding in the cave. Saul feels the call of nature, doesn't know that David is in the cave, goes into the cave to relieve himself. While he's in the cave, David's there with all his men, and his men are like, Hey, David! Now's your time. Go kill Saul. God has delivered him into your hands. Well, David sneaks up on Saul and, you know, he doesn't kill him, but he cuts off a piece of his robe to kind of be like, I could have killed you. And David even feels convicted about that. And after Saul leaves the cave, David comes out and he's like, Saul, my king. And he talks about, or he says to Saul, you know, hey, God delivered you into my hand, but I spared your life. I am not trying to kill you. David, in the eyes of our world, and even probably most of us in this room, had every right to kill Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. 
He was actively looking for him. If Saul had turned around and seen him, he would have stabbed him. Been like, I got you, David. But David's like, no, that's not what I'm going after. At one point, David says, may the Lord avenge me against you. So David's not saying that Saul is innocent or that something doesn't or so, nothing uh, should happen to him. But David is saying, I trust that God is the just judge. And even if I don't see justice in this world, I know that justice will happen because God is the perfect judge. And someday Saul will pay. Do we have that kind of perspective that says either A, they will meet their maker and they will answer for what they have done, or B, if they are a Christian, that what they have done has been put on Christ. And how dare I want to see sin be dealt with in a way that says the cross doesn't matter. And man, I'm not saying that we don't want to see there be consequences for sin in the fact that maybe somebody needs to be disciplined or something needs to happen in life. But do I trust that God is in control and that God is perfectly just? And at the end of the day, none of us will say, well, that sin wasn't dealt with. Geez, God, you weren't fair. Woe is us if we need to take matters into our own hands. So again, the Christian seeks to bless others, even those who have wronged us. I think a, an application you can ask for yourself is, what do you seek to defend? What do you seek to defend? Is it your honor, your stuff, your time? You know, hey, it takes a while to walk a mile, maybe about 20 minutes. You got a bunch of gear on. What do you seek to defend? Your honor, your stuff, or your time? And if someone were to come and to demand or take those things unjustly, which one of them would you have the hardest letting go? That'll kind of reveal in your heart, Lord, where do I need to change? Where do I need to change? All right, let's talk about this final example. We spent a lot of time on that, so we'll, we'll go quicker through this. Again, this, this one, this idea of loving your neighbor, really is a summary of the previous five. And this comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, they had gotten wrapped up in the people of God, because if you notice, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is not in Leviticus 19.18. It doesn't say anything about hating your enemy. But they had been wrapped up in this idea, I am a part of God's people. We are God's people. We love each other. But those people out there, no. Uh-uh. They were kind of taking this beyond what it was saying. To, I don't love the world out there. Those are my enemies and I hate them. I hate them. But Jesus gives this command. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The command there is actually, in, in English it would be really awkward to say, so they translate it this way. But it's be being, or be loving, be being somebody who's loving, this, this kind of ongoing loving person. It's not, hey, I loved them once, I did my duty, good job me. But no, be loving your neighbor. Be loving your enemy. Loving those like us is easy. He talks about this in verse 46 and 47. No group in the history of the world has ever struggled with this part, right? That's why we have like affinity groups. That's why we have nations, all these types of things. Because it's like, oh, these are the people that are like me. I like them. Yeah, I'm not going to hate them. We're going to hate the people out there. You know, those people. They're different. They're weird. 
That's easy. And Jesus is like, yeah, everybody can love their family, the people they like, their friends, their drinking buddies. Yeah, the world gets that. The thing the world doesn't get is how do you love those that are the people you shouldn't be able to stand? Not only that, the people who are looking to harm you. Those are the ones we need to love. And why? Back in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Like Father, like Son. God loves His enemies. And so when we are loving our enemies, we show ourselves to be like Him. We show ourselves to be like Him. God ultimately is the one who loves His enemies. We love stories of redemption. I'm going to ask a question. How many of you are fans of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender? Okay, a few. All right, well, that's sad. Never mind, I won't share that example. <laughs> There's a beautiful redemptive arc. If you're looking for a show that's great for your kids and has some, some good thematic elements, I'll, I'll recommend that one. There's a great redemptive arc in there of one of the villains that becomes one of the heroes. There's a, there's a genre, though, of stories and movies that you don't find redemption. It's the horror genre. Nobody's rooting for the redemption of the serial killer or the monster or whatever it is in the horror genre, right? Other genres, we do see redemption. I won't talk about Star Wars. But in horror, you don't have that. You have a villain who's out to get everybody, and the whole idea is at the end, you want to see that villain triumphed over. And sometimes, you know, that happens, but sometimes, you know, there's that little twist at the end where it's like, oh, they're not quite dead. There's a sequel coming, you know, that type of thing. We tend to think of ourselves, when we talk about being villains, we think of ourselves as being the villain in a story that naturally lends itself to redemption. Okay? We're like, oh, yes, we're villains that can be redeemed. But what I think we need to see ourselves, are, see ourselves as is the villains who are in horror flicks. Those who don't have redeeming qualities. Those who are out to get other people. We're the serial killers. We're the monsters. But God has loved us anyways. God has said to us, you are my beloved. And yeah, you're not redeemable on your own. But I'm going to write a story of redemption for you. A story so beautiful it will be far more pure and grand and glorious than any redemptive story mankind will ever come up with. Why do we resonate with those redemptive stories? Why did I literally cry when I watched Avatar The Last Airbender? Yes, a cartoon for children. Why? Because it has redemptive elements in it. Because it, that's what we long for, to be redeemed. And God is redeeming us. He has such a love that we cannot imagine. He has a love that is rich, extravagant, dare I say outrageous and inconceivable, scandalous, illogical. That's the type of love that our God has for us broken and sinful people who have hated him. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is not telling us anything that God has not already done himself. I have shared that before and I will share it again. That God never asks us to do something that is outside of his very own nature and what he has already done. Praise be to God that he is that way. 
because that is how we have experienced redemption. Okay, let me tell you this, our main point too. We're we'll, we're going to fly through these next part. The Christian seeks to love others, even our enemies. The Christian seeks to love others, even our enemies. I hope you're sensing a theme here with what Jesus is getting at. Now, if you can love your enemies, you can love those who make you uncomfortable. You know, we were talking to AM theologians, and I kind of was like, you know, I'm struggling to think of who are my enemies. I don't have an active group of people that I feel like are out to get me. At least not at this point in my life. But there are people that are difficult or make me uncomfortable or I find awkward to be around or frustrate me. But if you can love your enemies, you can love those types of people. Because I'm willing to bet that probably most of us don't have like this active group of people like our enemies. You know, we're not a nation at war. You know, or Iowa's, we're, we're not at war with South Dakota. So, you know, if we were, we'd be on the front lines. You know, we're, we're ready to go. But, so we don't understand this idea of enemies very well. But we do have things that are uncomfortable. I basically have one application for our church that I want us to corporately think about. Am I willing to be uncomfortable to reach our Hispanic brothers and sisters? Obviously, they are not our enemies. But for most of us in the room, they are different from us. And maybe when you experience a different culture, it's uncomfortable because you're like, I don't know what to do with this or how to act. And we long for people to come hear the word and to become believers. But the reality is, for a lot of people coming to a place like this, if they have grown up in a different culture and they walk in here where everybody generally looks the same and comes from the same cultural background, and we definitely have a very specific cultural feel, which that's not a bad thing, it's just a reality, it's going to be difficult for them to feel like they fit in. So do we, the people who make up the majority, are we willing to be uncomfortable for those who are in the minority? Are we willing to reach out to them and say, I care about you so much that I will lay aside my preferences for you because I love you? Pastor Carlos was sharing this with me as we were talking about how to welcome people to our church. Now, from the culture I'm from, if I'm meeting a stranger who's kind of walking through the door, probably the last thing I want to do is go give him a hug and be like, oh, yeah, I feel like my long-lost brother. I love you. Like, I'm sometimes hesitant to do that with people I really like, and I certainly don't want to do it with a stranger. And Pastor Carlos was sharing with me that Hispanic culture, and again, this isn't universally so in all places of all times, and you know, there's a lot of variation within different Hispanic cultures. But generally speaking, they're far more expressive and warm and engaging when new people walk through the door even if they haven't met them. There's the idea of the big old hug, just welcoming people that way, even if you don't know them. And I think a lot of us in this room were like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I want them to be welcome, but I don't really want to do that. What would it be like if we were a people that could welcome in that way? And you, it may make you so uncomfortable to do that, but are you willing to do it because it loves them well? Can we be that type of church? That type of church. Okay, let's talk about being whole in verse 48. And I've talked about before, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a summary statement, not just for the one that we had. Obviously, there's a big connection because Jesus was just talking about our Father who's in heaven and us needing to be like him. But this is really for all six. You must be perfect. And again, this is the idea of whole. 
It's not just external conformity with the law, but having a heart that's in line with the law. You see, Jesus here, this is an echo of Leviticus verse, or chapter 11, verse 44, where Moses says, Be holy, for I am holy. And Moses is talking about the Lord, not Moses himself. First Peter, in chapter 1, verse 16, he actually quotes that, and he says, Be holy as the Lord is holy. But here Jesus doesn't say be holy. He doesn't use the word for holy. He uses teleos, the word that's perfect or whole. Why does he do that? When clearly he's referencing Leviticus 11.44. It's because the Pharisees and the scribes were viewing this idea of holiness as this external thing that I do. It has to do with the washings that I do. It's the external religiosity that I have. It's the spiritual things that are part of my life. Those things out here that I do... Not who am I? And so Jesus uses a different word. Well, Matthew, Jesus would have been speaking in Aramaic. But Matthew picks up on this and uses perfect or whole. Whole. We want not external purity only, but internal moral completeness. Moral wholeness. So, third point, the Christian seeks to be whole for God is whole. Wholeness is the opposite of hypocrisy. I haven't really unpacked this yet. But stage actors in ancient Greece... You know what the word for those were? Hypocrites. That's where we get that word. Hypocrites. And stage actors would wear masks. That's how you differentiated between different characters was the masks that they wore. And so here, when when Jesus rails against hypocrites throughout the scriptures, the idea is you're showing one thing and being different on the inside. Matthew has five big discourses or basically teachings that Jesus gives, big blocks of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is the first, and then in chapter Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus starts talking about kind of the end, that's the last one. Well, he starts off the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the yada, yada, yada. Well, we get the opposite in chapter 23 in the last discourse. Instead of blessed, we get woe. And he gives you a list, a big list. They kind of parallel the the Beatitudes, but a big list of woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And you know what then he calls them in almost every single example? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. That's the title that he uses for them. That's the number one descriptor. It's your one way on the outside and different on the inside. And so the Christian is the opposite of that. They are the same on the inside as they are on the outside, just like God their Father which I said this last week, but that means in the, in the fact that he loves us, it's not a reluctant love. He's not like, well, I'm doing this because the law says I should. You know, aren't you lucky? But no, you are my beloved child, and I move towards you with my whole heart, and I can't do anything else because to do anything else or to feel anything else would be for me to deny who I am. That is who our God is. That's who our God is. As we wrap up, we're going to move into communion in just a moment. But I want to just invite you this morning that if your life is not the whole life, that if you have not laid down your life to Christ and said, Jesus, make me new. I confess that I'm a sinner and that I deserve to die because of my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. If you have not done that, I invite you here this morning to do that. Lay down your life. Believe that Jesus has died for your sins. The scriptures tell us that to become a Christian is just a matter of belief. It's believing specifically that Jesus' death was enough, that he loved you so much that he died for you. 
So if you are here this morning and you have not crossed that bridge where you have said, yes, Jesus, I believe I'm yours, I invite you to do that. If you do that, you'll be able to take communion with us. You will be part of his family, one of his children. Let me give you a kind of response statement for today. Father, help me to be whole just like you. And when I say whole, I mean really everything I've been talking about for the past three weeks. This idea of not being angry with my brother, but loving, not lusting, keeping my commitments, seeking to bless others, and loving even my enemy. That's the type of people that we need to be. Father, help me to be whole just like you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are whole, that you are perfect, and that you love us out of that perfection. Help us to be whole like you. Father, help us to love our enemies because, Lord, we struggle. We don't want to. Help us to bless our enemies because we don't want to do that either. Lord, may we have a desire to see their good. Help change us, Father. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.